Well, this morning we'll be studying one of the seven famous letters found in the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at the first letter, the letter addressed to the church in Ephesus. From our preliminary reading that was done earlier, you will figure out that the Ephesian church was charged for being an orthodox but loveless church. That was God's concern for this church, being orthodox but loveless. Should we be concerned about this in smack? Should we be bothered about asking this question? Are we an orthodox but loveless church, like the church in Ephesus? Verse 5 in the letter makes it very clear to us that it must be our concern. For if we are found to be like this church, and we continue to be in this way, the consequence is beyond serious. Christ will come and remove our lampstand from its place. In other words, God will no longer regard our church as his church anymore. This is serious. So let's take a closer look at this letter and reflect on it together this morning. The letter begins with an emphatic attempt to remind and to highlight to us who was it that wrote this letter? Who was it that made these commands about this church? This person's identity is very crucial because this is the person, this is he, who is in the rest of the letter, who will be charging the Ephesians, who will be calling them into actions, and who will be cautioning them, and who will be demanding them to listen. So who he is matters, doesn't it? Think about it this way. From experience, your personal experience... Do you listen and act on simply anyone's opinion of you or of your family? Someone come to Sui. Hey, Su, you know, uh, this Chinua. Sui responds, that's enough. I'll, I'll make sure that he gets it for me. He'll sleep outside tonight. You won't do that, isn't it? Similarly, do you listen and act on simply anyone's opinion of your church? No, you don't. Most of us will become defensive. Who are you? What do you know about us? Why should I listen to you? So in this letter, the author makes it very clear who was it that made these commands about this church. Verse 1b. It says, These are the words of him, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? Let me explain. We have already seen in, back in chapter 1, verse 20, that the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands symbolize the seven churches, which in turn represent all the churches of God in this world. And we also have seen in chapter 1 that this man who is now standing in the midst of the lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand, who is he? He is one who is like the Son of Man, and we are given detailed description of who he is, and we know that he is no other than the resurrected Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus emphasized in this particular letter that the author wants to draw our attention to is a picture of Jesus being present in the midst of his churches. He holds his churches in his hands. He walks 
among his churches. That is, Jesus is constantly on the ground. He is fully aware of everything that happens. He knows thoroughly what goes on in his church every single day, every single minute, every single second. What do you think of this picture of Jesus? Well, it brings both comfort as well as challenge, isn't it? It brings comfort because Jesus is one who is completely in touch with his people, with you and me. He is intimately concerned for them. He constantly cares for them. He's not like the distant politician who sits only in Parliament House, but he's one who walks the streets and knows his people inside out. He's with them all the time, through thick and thin, in joy and in sorrow. But such, a intimate, such intimacy also implies total transparency. And it poses a challenge to the church, isn't it? Nothing is hidden from Jesus. He's like the perfect auditor that every company fears. He's completely, utterly aware of everything. Literally everything. Every word that we utter, every thought that you think, from what you say to the person next to you just now during greeting time, to the thought that you had in your mind about Tim Phillips dressing today. He knows every single thing. It's completely transparent to him. So when Jesus says to your church, I know your works, your church better shut up and listen up. Don't make a fool out of ourselves by trying to defend. Oh, excuse me, Lord, uh, did you know about the outreach center that we had in Puchong that wasn't in the report? Did you know that? Yes, I do, Jesus said. And excuse me, Lord, did you read the appendix in our mission statement that we expanded what we believe? Yes, I do. I know everything, Jesus says. Friends, Jesus holds his churches in his hands. He walks among them. He knows them thoroughly. And this is he, this is he, the person who will be charging, calling, and cautioning the Ephesian church. This letter is not from any Tom, Dick, and Harry. It is not any Tom, Dick, and Harry's diagnosis of the church. So they better listen up and take heed. It is from Jesus. So point two. Let us now take a look at what Jesus says about this church. What is his diagnosis of the Ephesian church? What is it that he's charging them with? Verse 2. Let me read from 2 to 4. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for your name, my name's sake, and you have not grown very. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. <coughs> these verses, <coughs> sorry, these verses indicates that the Ephesian church was an orthodox church. They were doctrinally faithful and sharp and alert. 
They were able to discern doctrinal inconsistency in a group who disguised themselves as apostles. After examining the group, the Ephesians' theological, theological acumen penetrated the disguise, determined that they were false teachers and therefore evil, and exposed them as such. This church was always vigilant to protect right doctrine. And rightly so, given what we know of Ephesus in the ancient world. It was a great commercial center located at the trade route between Rome and the east, and that makes the city very susceptible to itinerant frauds, false teaching. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul said to the, this Ephesian church and his elders, in verse 29, he said to them, Thank you. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples from them. The Ephesian church took Paul's warning seriously, apparently. They did not take their faith lightly. They worked hard, they endured, and they have not grown very in order to guard the internal doctrinal purity of the church's faith. They did well. But then Jesus continued in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What does it mean? They have abandoned the love they had at first. Is it referring for their love for Christ? Or is it their love for one another? Or is it their love for unbelievers or mankind in general? What have they abandoned? Well, I don't think they are mutually exclusive. For there is a tight relationship between loving God and loving your neighbor and loving the lost. We can't claim to love God if we don't love our neighbor or the lost. And we can't love our neighbor and the lost if we don't first love God. So in our thinking about this love which the Ephesians first had and now that they have abandoned, I think we need to keep all the three tightly together. But the heart and the genesis of all love, I would say, is their love for God himself. Because it is one's love for God which then moves us to love our neighbor and love the lost. So I think in this letter, Jesus was first and foremost charging the Ephesian church for abandoning their love for him, their God. And this in turn caused them to neglect loving one another. So let's think about this for a while. The Ephesian church was charged for abandoning, for forsaking, stopping their love for Jesus while being zealous to remain doctrinally faithful to the teaching of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' charge to the Ephesians church here poses a challenge, a pointed question for every single Christian here today. It is the same piercing, it is the same piercing question which our Lord posed Peter in John 21.16. Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter this question not once, but three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that question, we were told, effectively grieved Peter. Imagine for a while, Jesus Christ, your Savior, my Savior, your Lord and my Lord, standing now next to you. Talking to you personally, addressing you, not the person next to you, but you, calling you by name and asking you, Fashid, yes, Fashid, you, not the person next to you, but you, do you love me? And he didn't just ask once, he asked three times, Fashid, do you love me? Do you really love me? Each time he put it distinctly to you and to you only. Will you not be struck by such a heart-searching question? I believe it will leave many of us here this morning grieving. For we are forced to face up with the reality if we love Jesus after all. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, in his exposition of this verse from John Gospel, said this, Only a mere pretender passes through the world without anxious inquiry and heart-searching. Better far that you are grieved today and be found right on the last than that we should presumptuously feel ourselves secure and be deceived in the end. Jesus asked Peter. Jesus challenged the Ephesians Christians. And this morning, Jesus is asking me and you personally this question. Do you love me? The question comes not from me, but from Jesus to each one of us. Do you Love me. For some, it may be, have you ever loved me? Or for others, do you still love me? In Revelation 2, we see that no one is exempted from this question. Not even the doctrinally sharp and alert Ephesians. So not even the solid Bible teaching smacked can be exempted. Not even the theologically sharp pastor preacher can be exempted. Spurgeon continued in his sermon saying this, We may have been battling with the king's enemies on this side and on that side, and standing up for the truth even as for our dear life. It is well to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, for this age needs men who are not afraid of to bear reproach of speaking out the truth with strong and stern words. We need to do that. But to this spirit, it is more important than ever that the question should come, do you love me? A man may be a very firm Protestant, but may not love Christ. He may be a very earnest advocate of divine truth, but he may not love him who is truth itself. 
He may maintain scriptural views concerning baptism, and yet he may never have been baptized into Christ. A man may be staunch nonconformist and may see all the evils against which nonconformity is a protest, but he may be conformed to the world and be lost, notwithstanding all his dissent. Smacked right at the heart of Malaysia, sorry for the pun, we find ourselves here in Smack, in a similar theological climate as in Ephesus. False doctrines are everywhere, in KL, in Malaysia. We must keep teaching sound doctrine every week, every day. But let us take heed, lest after we preach to others, we ourselves should be cast away. Do you love Jesus? Point three. Well, Jesus has now charged the Ephesians, making known to them the honest, frank, blunt diagnosis of their spiritual health. Next, he showed them what it looks like to take heed. He calls them to remember, to repent, and to do the works. Let's take a look. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Firstly, Jesus calls upon the church to remember. Remember the earlier days when love abounded in the congregation, when they first heard the gospel and experienced for the first time the redemptive love of God that is shown on Calvary. When they love Christ in response to his deep sacrificial love towards them on the cross. How about us? Do you remember? Do you remember the day when you were stunned, shocked by the amazing love of Christ? You have no words, but how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. Do you remember the day when your chains fell off and your heart was free and you actually ran forth, rose, went forth and followed him? You were so loved by God that all that mattered to you in your life was to love him in return. And that love so overflowed that you just want to love your newfound family and the lost. Do you remember that? Or have you gradually and slowly slipped away from that life-changing joy even without realizing it? Find time to sit down quietly by ourselves today and every day to remember that. Secondly, Jesus calls upon the church to repent, he says. Repent. Repentance is a common word that we use in our Christian circle, isn't it? Every Sunday here in Smack, during the confession prayer, we say we truly repent and are sorry for what we have done. And now here in Revelation, we see Jesus calling the Ephesian church to repent. And in fact, this call to repent in Revelation happens again and again in the rest of the letters. 
except Smyrna and Philadelphia, in all the other churches, the letters, they are called to repent. You can't miss it. But what does it mean to repent? It is important to be clear what it means, don't you think? For this is the response that Jesus demands and Jesus expects of us. And the consequence of not repenting is serious. Jesus cautioned in verse 5b, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is, the Ephesian church will cease to be God's church if they don't repent. So repentance is non-negotiable. Andrea Thieu is an American writer, Christian writer, and he wrote, she wrote this. She reflected on repentance and she said this. A quarter century of my life, a quarter of century after the fanfare of a conversion experience, I realized I had become a Christian without authentic repenting. I suppose there have been teachings along the way of the need to be broken over sin, but like many of us, it never ran deep. We limited ourselves to the generalized confession of sins during worship that amounts to little more than a solemn liturgical formula. I've rarely seen anyone undergo fundamental change through it, for it seldom put to death anything other than our consciences. You and I could be someone who think that we have been repenting, but in actual fact, we have not. So it is important to be clear, isn't it? What is repentance? Three weeks from now, I'll be studying with you the letter to the church of Thyatira. In that letter, the word repentance occurs three times within one letter. So no doubt, we will look at repentance again. But for now, let me make a few brief points about repentance. Firstly, repentance is not feeling sorry for yourself. That is self-pity, which is self-focused. Repentance, on the other hand, is God-focused. So repentance is feeling sorry you have sinned against a holy and loving God. Secondly, Repentance is not just about feeling sorry. Repentance is an actual change in mind. It involves a change in inward disposition, but also a complete turnaround in a person's life. When you repent, you turn away from your old sinful ways and you turn towards God to live His ways. You put off your old self and then you put on Christ in all of your day living, day-to-day living. Thirdly, repentance, though it is not only about feeling sorry, it must include feeling sorry. For by the convicting power of Christ's Spirit in us, there will be godly sorrow and grief for our sin. James 4 says very bluntly, you double-minded, be wretched, be mourned, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exhort you. But take note also, conviction of sin by itself is not repentance. 
Conviction of sin apart from turning to Christ has no value. Take, for example, John 4. You remember the story of the Samaritan. Jesus exposed the particular sins of the Samaritan woman when he spoke to her. She has broken the seventh commandment. Notice, though, Jesus did not urge her to enter the state of salvation through meditation upon her sins. Rather, Jesus points her to himself as the water of life. Repentance involves turning to Christ. Conviction of sin in itself is not repentance. For without faith in Christ, repentance just becomes a soul-chilling remorse. Fourthly, repentance does not leave the person guilt-ridden and powerless. Repentance doesn't leave the person guilt-ridden and powerless. When Peter was called to be an apostle in Luke 5, he fell down at Jesus' knee, saying to him, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. There, Jesus, there Peter had a real humbling awareness of his sinful self, his weakness. He was distraught with his sinful self. But to such a repentant sinner, Jesus drew near to Peter, took him gently by his hand and said, Do not be afraid. Similarly, Isaiah the prophet was not left guilt-ridden in the presence of the Holy God. Isaiah said, Woe to me, I am lost. He was distraught with his sin. But also then, he stood up confidently in the presence of the living God with bonus and joyous enthusiasm and says, Here I am, Lord, send me. Repentance brings a Christian joy, joy in the Lord. Fifthly and lastly, repentance is not once-off, but daily. Many Christians think you repent only once, that is, at your conversion. John Miller made this point in his book, and he illustrates for us how daily confession of sin and repentance can look like. He said this, My friend Kifa, which is a Ugandan, Kifa reports that believers in Uganda have an unusually honesty in confessing of sins. And as a consequence, the whole church has been filled with great joy. In practice, it means that a grim-faced brother may be stopped on the street and asked by his fellow Christian, My brother, have you confessed your sins today? Have you seen the cross of Christ today? According to Kiefer, believers are expected to see the cross when they confess the sins and leave their burdens there. So John Miller goes on to encourage the readers, saying, My heart's desire is the same for you who read this book. Do not attempt to confess and forsake your old ways apart from the love of God manifested in the crucified Lord. Instead, look to the risen Saviour who intercedes at the Father's right hand for you. As the Spirit exposes the evils of your heart, observe the wounds in Christ's hand. They are the absolute, unshakable promises of the Father, guaranteeing full access 
to the crushed spirit, to those who are crushed in spirit. Therefore, as you read, believe, and he will wash your tears in the blood of the Lamb. Well, before I move on to the last verse, last few verses, let me pull some strings together of what we have covered so far. We have seen that the Ephesians church failed to love. They have abandoned their first love. Their love for Jesus, their God and their Savior. Their love for neighbors, one another, and they failed to love the lost. Jesus calls them to repent and do the works of love that they had done previously. But what is the connection between their lovelessness and their repentance? Well, through repentance, there's through repentance, through genuine, deep, heartfelt, spirit-wrought repentance, God by His Spirit breaks down a believer. A believer realizes how wretched, how pitiable, how poor and blind and naked he is. He had failed to love God and his neighbor more than he himself knew about it. And this brokenness prepares the way for the Lord to enter into the person's life and be adored as a new center of his heavenly life. Previously, this person was consumed by self-love. But each time the Spirit convicted him of sin and turned him to the cross, self-love is overwhelmed and crowded out by the love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is the cure to lovelessness as he points us to the cross. Last point on verse 7. Verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has a year, let him hear. It's an Old Testament formula and is constantly used in the Old Testament and even we see it happening in the New Testament. And the purpose of it is to jot, to shock the listeners out of the spiritual lethargy that they found themselves in. It is telling us, Hey guys, this is serious. We need to sit up and listen carefully. He who has an ear, if you have an ear, you better hear. And we have already seen the seriousness of what he's saying here, isn't it? If you do not repent, the lampstand will be removed. And then the second part of the verse says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. What does it mean, the one who conquers? This ending, we will see it again and again for the next few letters. That's the way that Jesus ends the letter. The one who conquers is one who continues to walk with Jesus and to conquer the temptation of lovelessness in this case. The followers of the Lamb, you and I as Christians, are soldiers fighting a holy war. That's what Revelation is trying to tell us. 
It is a perspective of what is happening on this world from God's perspective. It's trying to convince us that we are in a war. We are in a holy war. And we are soldiers of the Lamb. And as soldiers of the Lamb, we conquer as the Lamb conquers. And we conquer through faithful endurance in time of suffering. That's the way we conquer, because that's the way the Lamb conquered. However, if you continue reading chapter up, to, up the way all the way to Revelation 13, you will be warned that we ourselves will be conquered as well, as well as conquering. However, the final victory belongs to the Lamb and the Lamb's follower. Because the victory first came through Jesus' death and resurrection, and it now belongs to the followers during the end times conflict that we found ourselves in every day. And that conflict will complete in Jesus' return. So I began by asking the question, should we be concerned about what Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus? That they are orthodox but loveless. I guess from the entire sermon, we can see that no church and no one is exempted from a soul-searching of where we stand with regard to whether we love God. And so as a church, I think we take these warnings seriously. And in fact, in the rest of the letters, every single warning that comes in the letter, we have to take it seriously. For we are the church of God, and Jesus Christ is kindly and lovingly giving us the warning. Let us pray and ask God for his help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your kind words. Your words, which are indeed sharp and honest and piercing. Your words that intend to discipline your children in love and to bring us back in repentance by faith in Jesus. Repentance to life, new life in him. And Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We pray that the Spirit will be at work in each one of us as we reflect on your word from, from Revelation again, your words of warning and comfort to the church in Ephesus. Pray that you help each one of us to truly confess our sins, not just to one another, but to you, that we will find the time in the midst of the busyness of everyday life to even lock ourselves in the room with no one else but us and you and your word, knowing that Jesus is our mediator that we can freely confess our sins and our failures and find the joy and comfort, the grace and mercy at the foot of the cross again. And that your spirit will change and transform us and you, in the end, will receive all the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.